Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. I don't want to be laying around dying one day wishing I would have explored these ideas, right? Leave it all in the field. Go explore it. People love new products. People love great products and people love things that are innovative and different. So why not give it a shot? Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. So you've been thinking about it. You keep staring at that vat of hot sauce that you make from scratch every single week, and you're wondering, how well would it do at the local grocery store? Well, today we're talking with my buddy Billy Bosch of Iconic Protein, who can offer some useful insight. Billy has taken the consumer packaged goods market by storm, and in our conversation today, he unpacks the process of going from an idea to the shelves of the most notable stores in the country. I didn't think the world needed another protein drink until I went to a dietitian who said, don't drink any protein drinks because they're all bad for you. Oh my God. <laughs> which time I said, what do you mean bad for you? She said, some will give you cancer and some will give you diabetes. Which one would you prefer? And I said, I don't oh my want God. either of those. So why don't I create a protein drink? <laughs> and it's crazy that you would even have that thought. You were five years into a stable job working for Shell. What gave you the confidence to take that entrepreneurial leap? You know, Josh, I think it goes back to working for my dad as a kid. My dad's a CPA for independent business owners and really small business owners in general. And I grew up working for these guys since I was like 10 years old. And so my reality was always entrepreneurship. And everybody that I worked with and all my mentors all had their own business. So I thought like, why didn't I do this? It makes total sense. Like the working in corporate America, I learned a lot. But from the first day of that, it felt really unnatural. And it felt like I was in a place that wasn't the right fit for me. Because as a guy with lots of ideas, as many entrepreneurs can be, they said, hey, listen, ideas, not a great place for that. <laughs> you want to have a lot of ideas, you should start your own business. And I thought, okay, cool, I will. I just have to figure out what I'm going to start. Yeah, but a national brand, in full disclosure, you and I are from the same place. We're both from Southern Louisiana. And like, I could see opening a small business in Baton Rouge, but the idea that you would start a national brand and start it from Southern Louisiana, I mean, how did you even know where to start? Hey, man, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff that's come from Louisiana, right? Look at Tabasco, number one condiment in the world. Yeah, <laughs> Out of for Louisiana. sure. So you see a few things from Louisiana. We're known for taste, not necessarily health. So that was different for people to process. But for me, I just thought like, especially when I started it, uh, it was in my late 20s. And I just thought like, anything's possible. I had this in my head, like, if I'm going to go bankrupt, I'd rather do it by the time I'm 30. So I'll hurry up and do it. And if it doesn't go well, I'll just start over and I got plenty of time. And that was kind of my thought process was just like move fast and break stuff and see if I could get this product to see the light of day. And Louisiana is not necessarily the best place to launch a health product. There's just not a lot of natural retailers there per se, but the people there are super loyal and super supportive. 
all the Whole Foods run nationally. The number one Whole Foods by volume and velocity sales per store is actually in Metairie, Louisiana. So wow. people there are super loyal. The reason I wanted to have you on the show is because I, like so many other restaurateurs, you stand in the middle of your commercial kitchen, you see a vat of hot sauce on the stove, and you say, I should bottle this shit. I could make a million dollars if I get into the CBG market. And I thought that everyone could learn from your past that everyone's making new mistakes instead of repeating the mistakes that you've already made. And so you decided to create a protein drink. Walk me through the next steps in the process. Well, you want to know what I did do that was a mistake or what you should do? Because <laughs> <laughs> those are two very different paths. Let's go with both. Okay. I'll say what I did mistakenly was focus a lot more on the brand and the audience and a lot of market research to really understand like what the product should be and the positioning and all that. And it's not to say you shouldn't do that. But the bigger thing that really took me two years to get over this hurdle was the co-packing. What I mean by that is manufacturing. The equipment to produce this type of a beverage is about $20 million, all collect with the equipment plus the facility and the people and all that kind of stuff. So that was a hurdle. There's also a long line <laughs> to get in. And the minimum production run size is going to cost you about $200,000 per flavor. So it's very cost prohibitive to get into. And I didn't realize that until later on. And it took me a while to get a place in line at one of these co-packers and understand who the best one was. In hindsight, I'd go back and tell myself, hey, man, go look at the co-packing situation first and foremost, and also look at market fit. But really, the co-packing almost makes more of a difference because if you have a great idea for a great product, it's irrelevant if you can't make it. Right. So you need to understand Absolutely. what co-packers are available and who's got what they call slack at the line, which is availability to actually produce the product. Because if that's not possible, then like your product's not going to see the light of day. So this certainly wasn't something that you were like creating in your garage from the outset. You were focused on scale. Yes, exactly. When you look at beverages in general, you could do like a refrigerated version of this, which is a low acid product, which is more of a milky consistency and pH level. Or you could do heat processing in the form of low acid aseptic, which they heat it to steam, cool it, and it's sterile product with high ingredient integrity. And that process is with these expensive machines, but it gives you a one-year shelf life with no preservatives versus going with a smaller processing machine, which is still not in your garage, but it's a smaller facility. It's like the shelf life of a milk product. So you get something like 30 days on the shelf. So the stores don't want to take that because it's going to go bad so fast. And if it does go bad, you have to pay for it, which who wants to do that? Well, and you know, we're working out of commercial kitchens as restaurateurs, but I would assume when you're working with a co-packer, it's almost like a strategic partnership, right? They're telling you about laws and compliance that you need to be able to follow in order to be able to get this done. Yeah, exactly. These facilities are generally approved by the FDA. And that's another thing. Hey, okay, even if I did have $20 million, am I really going to go through the FDA approval process and learn how to do this and be able to find the right people to run this facility? That's a real challenge. So understanding if you have a product idea, it's not to say don't do it, but it's to say, hey, look, I'd go back and coach myself and say, you have this idea. What if you did it in a powder format? Because powders are something that you could realistically mix in a lab or a small commercial kitchen and put out into smaller batches and hand seal versus these liquids you have to run in these larger pieces of equipment that are approved by the FDA. From the minute you had the idea to the minute you had a product in your hands that you could potentially sell to retail stores, how long was that process? 
It was about one and a half to two years, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was an enormous amount of hurdles. On one hand, I was very persistent. You could also describe this younger version of myself as very stubborn because I probably could have done something a lot easier and shifted into a powder format versus going into liquids. And here's how complicated this got, but here's where entrepreneur mentorship comes in is I went and I said, oh man, I can't do this. I can't do this. I had bought the packaging, the facility that I was trying to run at, had a production, had a break on their line. The next facility that was available had a recall on all the products because they had a contamination in their facility. So I'm sitting around on $30,000 for the packaging wondering, why am I doing this? What was I thinking? And I go to Joel Dondas, the founder of Sucre in New Orleans, and said, hey, man, I have no idea what to do here. And I think I'm just going to give up because I don't know where to make this product. <laughs> and it's unreal. And he said, Billy, you have to find a way. You have to find a way to do this. Even if you call every person on planet Earth that has this type of facility, you've gone too far, you have the packaging, you got to give this a try. Even if you can't use this packaging, try something else. Like think creatively here. Okay, so I go to a facility and basically they said, okay, we can't run your packaging, but we can run it in plain packaging because that's what we have available and we haven't vetted your packaging and we have a gap in the production runs in a couple of weeks. So just send us your ingredients and we'll run it into white packaging and said, okay, sure, why not? So I do that and get this. I get the packaging and it's got on half the bottle, not for resale. And I'm like, guys, um, I've got a few pallets of product that say not for resale. And I told you I was going to sell it. They're like, oh, yeah. Like, I guess that was a miscommunication. Come again. <laughs> so oh, my God. We're having to like put stickers over this stuff. You know, it's all vetted and approved. But we put stickers on this stuff, covered up that part, hand shrink sleeve the labels onto the product with clothing steamers, and then put that for test sale in grocery stores. And luckily, it sold really well. So we said, okay, let's go run this at a regular production facility. You know? That brings me to the next question, which you brought it up, and I think it's super valuable to share with the audience. Entrepreneurial mentorship has been a central focus of your entire career. What does that look like? What forms has that taken over the years? The way I look at it is I'm always a student, and I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I will outlearn everybody in the room. Because I will ask the right questions, any, I'll ask the wrong questions, and I'll ask everything out there. And so for me, it's just like asking a lot of questions and asking people, if you don't know the answer, who might know the answer? And would you mind introducing me? So building that network and also asking like, not just what can I get? What can I get? But how can I provide value to you? What can be beneficial to you? Because like, it would be little stuff like, hey, man, I know you don't like they're giving me a lot of advice about the beverage industry. How can I help you? I don't know, like, I'm not going to help them with the beverage industry. That's why I'm asking for help. But they may have a kid playing baseball and they're having a tough time communicating it to, with him or something like that. And I used to coach kids in baseball. So cool. I can give you some tips on that to get him to be more responsive or whatever it may be. So there's other things I could potentially be helpful with. So I always try to provide that value or at least offer and then continue to maintain contact with those people and thank them as I grew and like send them free product or little things like that go a long way. I think the massive lesson to learn there is that you have spent most of your career learning from people outside of CPG, right? That you'll take advice, you see educational opportunities with anyone you cross paths with, regardless of industry. Yes, definitely. And anytime there's a learning opportunity that I think I'll get some value from, it's always a hell yes, I'll make time for that, even if it's in a different country or somewhere obscure in the US, because I know like you can work 12, 14 hour days 
But when there's an opportunity to go learn, you really unplug and go be in that community and apply something to your business. That's what's helped us grow. It's not me sitting there plowing the field every day with the business, trying to just like outwork everybody. It's really outthinking people and getting off the battlefield and kind of becoming like a drone above the battlefield so I can kind of think through strategy, but learning strategy from other entrepreneurs outside and inside of CPG. Well, and what that's resulted in is you become what I would describe as a mastermind junkie. You go to (laughs) all of them. Yes. All over the world, you're a total mastermind geek. (laughs) And I want you to talk about that because a leader's highest and best use is conventional thinking within the four walls of their restaurant or within the four walls of the office space that is their business. But you are always out there. Talk to me about the power of the network that you've created and how that's helped your business in unexpected ways. Excellent question. And sometimes it's funny as an entrepreneur who feels like you should always be working nonstop, which I do, I sometimes feel guilty about traveling and going to these things and spending money on them. But I tell you, I have yet to find one of these events that I'm not making a 5 to 10x return on investment from, not just cash on cash from the connections or agencies we work with or freelancers or whoever it may be, but also techniques and strategies that I then apply to the business. So that's why I keep saying yes to these different opportunities. Sometimes it's just like a, a different way of thinking about a business challenge. But once you start getting into these mastermind circles, and the first one is a big hurdle. Like the first one I went to, I think it was $10,000 for an event. And I'm thinking, I'm going to spend $10,000 to go to one event for a weekend. Come on, man. Who am I? What am I doing? But I talked to a lot of the entrepreneurs that had been, and they said, forget about the 10K. You're going to make 100K or more from this event. And I'm thinking, if I keep hearing this from other entrepreneurs, how can I not go? It's fiscally irresponsible to avoid going to this event. So I went and sure enough, we connected with an email agency, this boutique group that brought in about 200,000 revenue for us in the next year. I'm like, okay, that 10K turned into 200, totally worth it. And once you get in one of these networks, then you start hearing about other ones. I do my homework on them, vet them. And of course, look, you can't go to all the events, but I try to go to at least one a quarter and stay in sync with these people and try different ones so I can be exposed to different groups and learn from these people in terms of like whether it's a digital marketing tactic or just different ways to think about fundraising or approaches to profitability or whatever the tactics may be. It's very helpful. I know that fear, the fear of losing everything or almost as bad, the fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. Let's get back to Iconic. So at this point, you've got these vacuum sealed labels that you've created yourself on pallets and pallets of protein drink. What do you do with it? What was the debate in your mind about retail versus direct-to-consumer? How did you guys decide what the best path to market would be? Keep in mind, this is about eight years ago. So e-commerce is still a big thing, but it wasn't nearly as big as it's now, of course. The big challenge with beverages is shipping. 
because if we shipped it ourselves via you know FedEx or UPS ground, even with a discount, we're paying on average fifteen to seventeen dollars a case of twelve bottles to ship it. And if your cost of goods is call it uh, twelve to fourteen dollars a case, then you pay fifteen dollars in shipping, and you're selling it for thirty dollars, thirty five dollars in our case, depending on the channel. You can see there's just not a lot of money to be made there because then you have to spend money on marketing customer service issues or whatever may came up, come up along the way. And we're literally losing money on e-commerce versus if we sell it in stores, we're making money. So it wasn't until we really found ways to get our cost of goods down by shipping more volume that shipping online became profitable. So the first few years was really a focus on retail. And I put the product in the back of my trunk and I said, I don't know where this is going to sell. I think it's going to sell really well in gyms and grocery stores, but I should sell it everywhere imaginable to start to understand what that is. So I literally took a shotgun approach and I sold it on a military base. I sold it in convenience stores and gyms and hospitals and grocery stores, coffee shops, everything imaginable. Anybody that sold liquids had Iconic in Louisiana, right? Or at least in the New Orleans area, because I'm literally just driving this stuff around town, selling it into stores. And I would offer the case for free. I'd say, hey, look, you don't want to buy it? Cool. I'm just going to give you this case. If it doesn't sell, throw it away. If it sells, call me back. And it would sell in those <laughs> cases. <laughs> and who doesn't want to sell free stuff? I'm like, why would you not take this deal, right? You're going to make potentially $100 of incremental revenue just in a couple of weeks. So it's a low barrier to entry for a lot of brands if they tried that method. So that was kind of like the first year was trial and error there. And I learned that it was, in fact, grocery stores that drove most of the volume. Gyms were more of like an awareness play but not as popular. And then it was like C-stores and coffee shops would do well for us as well. And you look at the big brands that are out there that have been around forever, right? Myoplex, Isopierre, all of these. Like, how did you compete with them? Especially in the early days when there was no brand presence. What was your strategy there? It's so hard, man, because these guys have a lot more distribution. (laughs) They have a lot more money. (laughs) So it was really finding ways to competitively differentiate, like getting dietitians to support our product and putting it in front of them. And they say, hey, look, drink this, not that. And you get enough people talking about that and customers start to take note and really like taste testing because protein drinks are known to taste like what? Shit. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) The Met Max, like there's a lot of descriptors for protein drinks, usually never good, right? And I said, look, if we're in Louisiana, this damn well better taste good. This better be the best tasting protein drink ever made. And that's always been our goal is really a taste first product to be like really like artisan craft. I even had people, Joel from Sucre and his chef and other chefs in New Orleans try it out. Like T from Commander's Palace, she tried it out, gave me some suggestions on how to tweak taste and stuff. So it's really like having people with that right palate be involved early on to make sure this tasted really good and different from other protein drinks. And so when you let, they call it liquid to lips and beverage, right? So if you get out there and sample enough, which is a big part of the marketing strategy for most beverages, and especially for ours, let people try it, let them decide. And if they don't like it, then like they don't buy it. And I did the same thing with buyers. When I got into H-E-B in Texas, I literally went in and she's like, I got an office full of protein drinks. Why am I meeting with you? Who booked this meeting? I said, look, there's going to be a short meeting. I said, I need about 30 seconds. She goes, this is a 30 second meeting. Okay, this is the first. I said, here's a bottle of this product. Pick any one of these products behind you that you like that are all these protein drinks in your store. If you don't think mine is better, I'll leave. And this is the end. You'll never hear from me again. 
And she said, okay, game on. So she opens our product and then she tries one of her favorites and she goes, wow. Okay. I don't understand what's different here. You have my attention. And then I explained the ingredient story, how we source, where we source, how it has no sugar in it, but it still tastes good. And how I started the business. And it was like, she was sold. So that was how we got into one of the largest retailers in the South. Let's also talk about positioning and price point. So you're certainly not going door to door saying you should get iconic. It's the cheapest shit on the market because it most certainly is not. You sell a premium product for a premium price. And I'm sure that you have been tempted. I did a little research before this. You can buy like an 11,000 pack of muscle milk for like a nickel and a Tic Tac on Instagram today and they'll <laughs> deliver it to your house in five minutes. Yes, yes. There are much cheaper, obviously not as good products out there. But over the last eight years, I can't imagine that you haven't been tempted when you see the volume that they're able to push to lower your price and be more competitive. What has been your pricing strategy and what has inspired you to stick with that strategy over time? We looked at it early on and I said, if I try to compete with these guys, it's going to be a race to the bottom because even Muscle Milk has lost market share to some other larger brands that have said, hey, we're going to be cheaper than Muscle Milk. We'll just sell in volume at Costco and Walmart and make up for it. But it's a race to the bottom, not only in price, but in the integrity of their products and then in the ingredient quality. There's some videos that came out of a large company recently that's in our space, and they're abusing the cows, they're feeding them corn all day, they're on lots with no grass. It's just like, it's a mess, man. And if you want to cut corners and do that, go for it. But for us, our consumer actually cares what goes in their body, and they're willing to pay for something with better ingredients. So it's always a balance of like pricing as a premium to cover the cost of those ingredients, but not pricing yourself out of the market and selling $20 protein drinks. It's like, Maybe someone buys that, but it's going to be hard to scale the company and grow it. So we said, okay, we'll price above our competitors. And honestly, like if I could go back and advise myself, I'd advise myself to like double the price and price the thing at like $6 a drink because yeah, I would sell less, but I would test the top of the market and the, the margin and, and beverages, specifically protein drinks is so low across the industry that it just doesn't allow for a large sustainable business. So you have to find ways to get your cost down and get creative. But for us, it was also getting into powders, right? Because powders provide a lower cost per use to the consumer and they're higher margin for the business. So it was a great way to build a healthier business. But liquids are still 80% of our business. It's the demand because people want something that they can open up and drink right away versus something they have to work and mix up. Your role on LinkedIn is the CVO of Iconic. What does that stand for? Well, it's really whatever you want it to be, Josh. I mean, for me, it means <laughs> <laughs> chief visionary officer. And what does that mean? No one knows, but it's provocative. Uh, <laughs> it's really a way for me to be creative and find different ways to add value to the business. Because I said that, you know what, like I could make up some other specific thing, but in reality, I'm involved on different fronts, right? Some days I'll be in a sales call with one of our retailers. I'll be prospecting a large key account lead. Some days I'll be coaching or recruiting our team. Some days I'll be organizing a team retreat. Some days I'll be working on digital marketing initiatives or whatever it may be, or working on a fundraise. So it's a lot of different things. But the larger piece of this is like, what's the vision for Iconic? And what can I do to add enterprise value? Because ultimately the goal is to 10x the growth of this business. And how do I do that? And how do I work on the business versus in it? 
is always like the e-myth challenge, right? Because it's tempting to go dive in and roll your sleeves up and, and just get into it every day. But is the best use of your time and the most valuable piece of this for the business? Probably not. And the change in that title came when I hired a president about two years ago and then promoted him to CEO. And then I took myself more out of that CEO operational role and found other ways to really add value to the business. I would argue that more than anything, you're a storyteller and an evangelist. And I think that the struggle for most entrepreneurs, because we all start in the garage, right? And there's this cathartic joy that comes from working in the business. You work on something today, there's an immediate result today. And when you're evangelizing, when you are leading your company, you are working really hard on something today that you will not experience the benefits for until some unknown time in the future. And the reason I bring it up is because it's a really slippery slope, but you have done a really great job over the course of the last eight years, not only pulling yourself out of the business, and I want to talk about this specifically because it's a relatively new role for you. You're standing in front of the business. You're telling <laughs> your story. You're telling it through the company. You're telling it on social media. And it's a really uncomfortable place to be, which you've spoken about openly. Most restaurateurs have no desire to be in front of the camera, right? We just want to do our job and that's it. Talk to me about the benefits that you've seen personally, professionally, and as a business owner from getting out front in front of your business and becoming that evangelist. Well, people love a story. And what I learned in pitching the business, because I realized early on, I was going to need to raise some capital to cover the cost of production runs, because I'm not this independently wealthy guy with millions of dollars in cash sitting in the bank, unfortunately. So I said, okay, I've got to get Yet. out there. Yes, yes, <laughs> on the way. <laughs> Actually, I am. Shh, don't tell anybody. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but I went out and I found through a lot of failed pitches of talking about the product, technically why it's superior to everything else, and how we're going to scale the business. And this, like, no one cares. People care about a story. People care about why you started it, how this story could be potentially relevant to them, and they get emotionally involved. And then if they taste the product and like it, it's a big win. So it wasn't until a number of failed pitches early on that I realized, okay, I've got to tweak this a little bit. And I started talking to people and telling them the story and really explaining that versus just like throwing a pitch at them. And I won a few different business plans. And then I started getting into retailers and the retailers, they care about that. It's not a lot of discussion around pricing most of the time. They want to hear the brand story, why it's different, ultimately how it's going to make them money but really what your differentiators are and why this is a great product because it's really at their discretion what they're going to bring into the store. And so my comfort zone isn't in front of the camera. My comfort zone isn't on this podcast with you. We're having conversations with us being friends chatting, but at the same time, sometimes it feels a little bit showboaty to kind of get in front of the camera. But what I realized is that it's actually selfish not to share the knowledge that you have and you're doing the business a disservice by not getting in front of the camera and not getting in front of the buyer and not getting on a stage to pitch because the business needs that. That's what's going to help drive success. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. As restaurateurs, we're all interested in getting into CPG. Do you have any advice you would like to share for the people listening since you executed it so well? Well, thank you. And look, there's been probably more mistakes than successes, but that you learn a lot more from the mistakes, of course. So 
I would say don't be afraid to explore starting your own product. You may think like the shelves are full of products and they are. No retailers is saying, hey, I really wish I had more products. No one ever says that. But it doesn't mean there's not an opportunity for you. So if you're interested in exploring creating a, a product, don't be afraid to explore that. Take a look, figure out what the market looks like, see what products are out there. Don't be afraid to put your idea in front of people. That's another thing. People say, oh, it's a secret idea. I shouldn't tell anybody. No, man. I told everybody who would listen about this product because no one cares about your idea as much as you do. So you can really get valuable feedback when you put it in front of people and say, hey, would you consume this? And you may have a hot sauce idea. And people say, dude, no, I got plenty of hot sauce. Oh, well, what if it's like spicier than the rest? No. What if it's a story about a guy that grew up on the bayou and lived racing alligators? And be like, okay, now I'm interested. Or whatever it may be, but you find whatever it is that ticks people and, and gets them interested. And you find that twist and that tweak in your story and your product. And then that gives you that valuable feedback. So I would say, don't be afraid to put your idea out there and don't be afraid to investigate the marketplace to see what the competitive landscape is and also contact a few co-packers and figure out what the lay of the land is because what you may figure out is like hey they can't make hot sauce or they there's no capacity for that but they've got another facility next door that can make cereal and no one's running product there so you could go make your dream of a cereal and maybe that's your product instead and it's hot sauce flavor <laughs> but yeah don't be afraid to explore that because here's the thing, man, I always think I don't want to be laying around dying one day wishing I would have explored these ideas, right? Leave it all in the field, go explore it. People love new products. People love great for products and people love things that are innovative and different. So why not give it a shot? That's Billy Bosch. For more on his products, visit drinkiconic.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.